the Work Awards for Effectiveness are back for 2024, and they are bigger than ever. We are looking for campaigns that celebrate strategic brilliance and effective impact across 12 categories and five new regional shows, including Latin America. The great news is that you just need to enter once for the chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix, which will be announced during Cannes Lions Week. I'm Mauro Rodriguez, Works Marketing Director, and I'm so excited that we are launching our first ever Latin America Awards. It's a brilliant opportunity to shine a light on the unique and amazing work I know Latin American brands and agencies are creating. We're open for entries now. Early bear deadline is the 12th of December and final deadline is 6th of February. For more info on the fees and regions covered, head over to work.com to download your entry pack now. Strategic Brilliance, Effective Impact is the awards show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to The Walk Podcast. My name is Anna Hamill and I'm Senior Editor for Brands at Walk. I'm back with a new collection of podcasts, CMO Conversations, where we ask the big questions to some of the world's most influential marketers. In today's episode, Grant McKenzie, who is Chief Marketing Officer for Asahi in Europe, is joining us. In this interview, we talk about opportunities in sponsorship, why fighting climate change is so essential to the company, and the role of generative AI in marketing. Enjoy the conversation and stay tuned for more interviews in coming weeks. Grant, welcome to the Walk Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. It'd be great to start uh, with a brief introduction, I think, of yourself and some of the brands that you're working with, teams and, and initiatives that you oversee within your role at Asahi. Sure. So I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Asahi, Europe and International. I started actually my marketing career in 97, and for eight years, I was involved in the Sweeties business with Mars, which was great fun. And in 2005, I joined the brewing industry, working at the time for SEB Miller, which then became Asahi in Europe. So for 12 years, I was a local marketing director in various countries in Europe, Spain, Hungary, Romania, Czech, Slovak. And now I'm uh, the head of marketing, which means uh, there's about 200 people working in marketing in our organization. I look after uh, the global brands, so Peroni Nastro Azzurro, Asahi Superdry, Pilsner Urquell, Cozel & Grosch, as well as capability for marketing, media, innovation, and insights. So great job, um, lots of exciting things happening. Let's jump into some of the big picture issues that are shaping marketing strategy. So based on walk data from Marketers Toolkit 2024, we've seen that economic recession and inflation are still the most important issues for marketers going into the next year. And that's especially important for marketers in Europe compared to other regions in, your wor in the world. What's your view on the macro situation right now and how it's impacting consumers in your categories? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that inflation is real and, and people are being a bit more cautious with their spending. So if you look at what's happened with the beer category, I mean, we, we've had huge input uh, price pressure. So our costs have gone up. We've had to pass on some of those cost increases to consumers. So prices are up. I think part of the impact of that has been a reduction in volume. So across Europe, beer volume is slightly down. But spending on beer is remains strong. Um, it's slightly up because of those price increases. It didn't help, I think, this year that the weather was generally poor in the summer. That's that's super important for us in driving category sales. Um, so I think it's a reality that volumes are under pressure, but 
premiumization, which has been the story of certainly our category, and I think most categories in the last 10, 15 years, we see no evidence of that changing at all. Um, particular to our category, though, and what, what is important is we are seeing the channel mix change. So in other words, uh, on trade or horeca, the restaurants and bar scene, people are you know, economizing there and that, that channel is under pressure. People are buying more of our products in retail outlets where obviously there's, there's lower cost, people are economizing and not going out. So that's having a, an impact on our, on our business or category. Uh, but I, I would say, you know, marketeers at these times have to be very careful uh, not to change the strategy uh, where it doesn't need to change. So, I mean, the strategy of premiumization and increasing, in our case, our business in non-alcoholic uh, beers definitely is the right strategy. It's not a unique strategy. It's the right one. And it would be very dangerous to change that. I think the final point, which my experience, you know, having been through a couple of these kind of economic challenging times is it's also very, you have to be very careful not to try to cut cost um, at, to the detriment of value. So what we see is that premiumization continues. Some of our most expensive products are the ones which are growing the fastest. If you can deliver value, people will pay the money. And so the job of marketing is still to ensure that there's enough value there for the price people pay. And I think I would caution marketeers to fall into the trap of saying we need to make things cheaper. That's not always what people want. When you say cut costs specifically, what do you mean by that? Um, make the products cheaper, reduce the pack sizes, um, you know, perhaps launch variants which have cheaper recipes or cheaper variety. You know, think things which physically reduce the price of your product. But over time, if you're not careful, they can also damage your brand. And as I said, particularly in the category we work in where relative affordability is high. I mean, you can buy a beer in retail for a couple of euros. It's more important that you invest into value, that people see, I know why I'm going to pay this money and I get value from that. And in these times, you know, that's what people want. They don't want cheap. They want good value. How do these pressures change your decision-making calculus in terms of the marketing choices that you're making or the media investment choices that you're making as a brand? I don't think the strategy changes. I think it may um, change the timing of certain things. So when you launch an innovation, quite often the first year of an innovation launch is not a profitable year. It, it pays back over two, three years. And therefore, you might decide in some places not to launch an innovation next year. I'll wait till the, till the year after. But it doesn't change your strategy because, as I said, the key drivers of long-term demand in our category remain stable. So our category in volume is in, frankly, historic decline. Slow, slow, slow decline, but significant premiumization. You know, the premium and super premium category has gone, if you go back 20 years, it's gone from 10, 12, 15% of the category to 40%. There's dramatic premiumization. We've also seen the growth of non-alcoholic beer from almost nothing to a very, very substantial part of the category. In Central Eastern Europe, it's 10% of the beer category. So those things are not changing. So I think our strategy hasn't changed. Perhaps some of our short-term plans change. In terms of media choice, again, I think marketing best practices resist the temptation to go down what's called performance marketing routes, which is you know, cut big media and go into 
I don't know, online performance marketing, that also is not a great idea. I think you need to look at the non-working media costs, you know, perhaps reuse a copy for another year, uh, reduce the, the money that you spend, which doesn't help or doesn't face consumers, but be very careful about what you do with media choices, unless there's real facts behind it, you know. And there's ways to uh, make that media spending more effective without necessarily cutting budgets, as you say, or investing more in less efficient media forms. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess like digital media, if you, if you, the more good data you have, the more able you are to be effective, um, you know, target the right people with, a, with the right message at the right time. So you can definitely be more efficient there. I think in, you know, traditional TV, it's becoming more, even more challenging with the increase in fragmentation. That's a real challenge. So TV is extremely effective, very, very, very effective for us. But yes, indeed, it's becoming much, much more fragmented even than it was before. Um, so you just need to be a bit more sophisticated, I guess, or smarter how to do it. One of the major priorities for Asahi at the moment across your brands is seeking out that idea of an elevated experience uh, through the brand story, through healthier options, through flavour innovation, some of which you've mentioned. How are you telling that story of evolution through your marketing? Well, I think there, there are two meanings there. One is the products we offer. We need to offer more choice. So if you go back in time, you know, lager pretty much had the same flavour with the same relative alcohol level. Um, different color bottle i think that's not enough anymore you need to offer a lot more choice so we launched pironi capri this year which is a very very different beer very different flavor a much lighter lower bitterness more citric beer um, which opens up um, the category for more consumers zero zero so non-alcohol beer is flying for us i mean massive growth for us and that's offering in many of the same occasions i think people the choice to moderate so I think there's a product dimension um, around lager, around non-lager, so craft beers and the things we do around RTDs and flavoured. And then I think the second point is really around how you bring excitement to the brand experiences. So, you know, people expect more than just a nice cold beer. I mean, that's, that's important. That's good. But that's the basic. So you have to do, you know, when people buy our brands, I want them to feel special. I want them to feel that the extra money they spent on Peroni or Asahi was money well spent because the beer is nice, sure, but actually they just feel a bit special. And I think the work we do around marketing, whether it's through the partnerships, uh, the advertising or the activation in the markets, has to deliver that. Non-alcoholic beer is, is one of the things that we've been reading about in the industry for a couple of years now. You mentioned that it's flying. I'm interested in a little bit more perspective around how that how launching those products is going for you and maybe what we can expect in the future in that space. Well, in this case, you know, Western Europe is trying to catch up with Central and Eastern Europe. So we started this journey 10 years ago uh, where non-alcohol beer um, became a key priority for us. And we've grown it with two distinct offerings. One is Let's, we call it classic, which means non-alcohol beer that's designed to taste like the beer. And the second one is flavored. So it's designed not to taste like beer, but like flavored raspberry, uh, pineapple, lemon, uh, as pure soft drink refreshments for adults. Now, first of all, you have a proposition here, which is fundamentally strong. So these are low sugar, low calorie, um, hydrating products. So they're really great for adults. Um, but you had a barrier to overcome. And the barrier was, geez, non-alcohol beer, what's the point of that, number one? 
and two, must taste crap. Because particularly in the past, you know, when I was a young boy uh, or young man, I should, as I should say, you know, non-alcohol beer did taste bad. Uh, that's different now. So manufacturers like that, we've invested a lot of money and a lot of time to make the products really good. And then we've put more effort now to market them as positive choice, you know. So we sponsor uh, the Aston Martin Formula One team with Peroni Zero Zero. We do, you know, uh, Manchester City with Asahi Zero. These are aspirational sports marketing properties and, and our competitors do other, you know, similar things to say, hey man, this is actually a really cool thing. So what we know the exact number we disagree on, but everyone agrees that the new generation of consumers probably consume about 20% less alcohol than previous generations. And they want more moderation. It doesn't mean they don't drink. They want more moderation. What we've seen is non-alcohol beer is not necessarily only a choice, a black and white, you know, it's like veganism. Like I'm always a vegan. There are people who are always vegan, but there are a lot more people who have vegan days or vegan weeks. And we see that non-alcohol beer um, can form part of a consumption diet. And in fact, most of the time when I go out now, if I have five beers, two of them are non-alcohol beers. And by mixing that up, you're reducing your alcohol consumption, um, but enjoying the occasion with friends. So I, I think it's got, you know, a huge pathway to growth. So as I said, in Central Eastern Europe, it's about 10% of our business. In the UK, it might be about 2%. Therefore, I think I'm not exaggerating when I say we believe there's 500% growth to come in the next few years. Um, we've only just begun. But, you know, Peroni this year is going to double its sales in the UK market, Peroni zero zero, And we think, again, next year, another huge year of growth. So um, I think it's more positive marketing and far better products are leading to, and there's an innate consumer desire for adult soft drinks, which are lower in sugar and all the rest of it. Uh, it's just providing, you know, category bo uh, boost. That's a really good uh, opportunity to jump into a little bit more depth on those changing demographics around the category because that is something that is very much happening at the moment. And beer is a category which has perhaps seen a lot of gender stereotyping over the years, especially in how it markets itself to men as a core audience in the past. How are you thinking about connecting with evolving profiles of beer drinkers and bringing in new buyers from a range of demographics? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I would argue we've stereotyped, I mean, we've stereotyped women, we've stereotyped men as well, um, which was really stupid. So to alienate half the population is not a great marketing strategy. Uh, I, I think we've learned from that. So I don't think anymore um, we target a gender. Um, we're also at the end of targeting ages. So demographics as a targeting concept in beer make no sense whatsoever. I think what we try to target is a, is a need state or an attitude, yeah? So if you, uh, you know, love Japanese cuisine and you're interested to explore new flavors and tastes, then Asahi Super Dry is a great brand for you. It matters nothing to me how, if you're 18 or 80, if you're a man or a woman, it's, it's irrelevant. So I think we're away from those things now. So when we develop our marketing strategy or plans, we really talk about, um, you know, groups of uh, like-minded people, regardless of their demographics, what things they look for, where they go to eat or drink, what things interest them. And those are the people we want to talk to. And then when we do our advertising or activations, we're very cautious or careful to make sure that we represent a broad spectrum of people that are relevant in that market. Um, which is why when we do partnerships with um, Manchester City, we do a lot of work with the women's football team. 
as well to make sure that it's a statement that this is for everyone. As you've evolved that approach to targeting and how you're messaging to these different groups, have you changed the influencers or social media content creators that you're working with or how you're selecting them? How are you tra- uh, translating those changes in demographics to the marketing choices that you're making? Yeah, I mean, I think when we choose influencers, um, we choose them to represent fairly broad um, demographic profile, uh, but people with interest in what we want to do. So when we have uh, the British Formula One Grand Prix, we, in, we have a house of Peroni there, um, Peroni 00, and we invited uh, different influencers, but, but ones whose audience would be interested in our product. And they were very different demographically in terms of age and gender. So I think it's, it's, it's really much more now about attitude and need state. And all of our marketing, you know, inputs and documents, that's what you'll see. I mean, the last thing I suppose that still exists with some age targeting is media. So I guess when we do the media stuff, there is still a kind of forced, we're sort of forced to kind of choose on the ages. Um, but you're right. I think in terms of uh, beer, beer's had a troubled history with this. Um, it's also been reflected in the fact that historically, most beer companies were the senior executives were all men. Yeah, that's changing and needs to change more. Certainly in my marketing, so from the 200 plus people in marketing in Asahi, I think just over 60% are women. Um, but more importantly in the leadership, I think five of the nine marketing directors now are women. So that's not a surprise. It's not nothing wow. It's just a change from what it was because when I started in the business, they were all men. So it's just about, I guess, having more diverse leadership and staff internally makes a really big difference as to how your brand is portrayed out in the world. I think it helps, and I think it helps to use data. You know, there's a lot of conversation about data in marketing, but my experience is most businesses have quite a lot of data. They just don't like to use it. (laughs) So when you actually look at who drinks the products and, you know, the size of the market potential, then you naturally have a more diverse marketing approach because our products were never designed to be niche uh, single gender products. There's no reason that would be. Uh, so it's just a kind of logic. Yeah. And I, but, but of course you're right. The more diverse your leadership and organization, it's extremely likely you're going to get more uh, broadly diverse plans. Do you feel that brands could be seen differently or negatively in the future if they fail to evolve from that stereotyped portrayal I know brands are we're already talking about moving past the stereotypes of women for example in CPG around cleaning or household wares do you think that brands who struggle to move forward from those I guess macho stereotypes of men may suffer with consumers in the future um I think they'll probably just be less relevant you know so I think the punishment they'll receive will be lower sales and lower market share um so I think there's a degree of truth there um, you know, there may be categories where it makes sense uh, to focus on certain genders. I mean, I don't know, but I think I think you have to be careful to be authentic, uh, but recognize honestly that your consumer group is probably much more diverse than you think it is. And I think the more you focus on needs um, and attitudes and less on demographics, whether they're age or gender or anything else, I think the more likely you are to succeed as a brand, whatever category you're in. Let's
let's jump into sponsorship because I know this is a huge part of what you're working on uh, at the moment especially. So walk data from this year's Marketers Toolkit showed that brands are more likely than agencies to dismiss the importance of sports events for mass reach. And nearly a third of those believe that sports isn't really important at all anymore. So what's your view on that? I can have a guess at what it might be. Yeah, I think we probably think that's a load of old rubbish. So we have a very different perspective. So obviously in our category, you know, beer um, is incredibly relevant uh, with sports. What we know, sports is genuinely a passion point for consumer. It's also one that really brings people together. Yeah, so people get together to watch sports. Um, Not all of them, but particular sports. And it's definitely something that really unites people now. You know, we live in a world where there's a lot of polarization you know, difficult views around things. But sport, you know, really gets people together. I mean, at the moment, as we talk, the Rugby World Cup, um, you know, is is in full progress. We're going to the knockout stages. I was there last weekend. Unfortunately, Scotland got beaten. But, you know, what a great event. We were surrounded by Irish fans and we just had a great time, even if we didn't win. So I think um, we know that. And we know that when you when your brand does a good and credible job with this partnership with this property that the fans consider rate your brand considerably higher than people who are not engaged with that so we know it has a very big knock-on impact we also know today i mean we talked about fragmentation of tv audiences that sport can become one of the properties where you can actually I don't say avoid fragmentation, but it overcomes some of the challenges because you can really reach a very, very broad audience. So Formula One, which we've been involved with for three years, you know, the profile of that is changing a lot. So people used to think it was like middle-aged men, right? Um, And there still are middle-aged men that watch it and that's fine. But it's a lot broader than that now, a lot more. So over 40% of the fans are women, a lot lot of younger people coming in. It's getting big in America. That was always like a weak spot, etc. So... That's becoming a really global partnership uh, and, and property. So uh, we, we find it incredibly important. I mean, in our local businesses, Czech Republic ice hockey is a major sport. We partner with the Ice Hockey League with the national team because that's a huge passion point for Czechs. You know, it's, it's, and we find over the years, you have to be effective as a brand. You have to have a point of view. You have to have an authentic voice there. But if you do it well, it definitely does the two things of short-term and long-term brand building. Long-term brand building, you're associating yourself with something of great passion. Short-term, yes, it drives sales, it drives trial, and it drives positive experiences because you're likely to enjoy our products in the company of friends with an exciting event. So it gives you a very nice memory. How has your approach to sponsorship evolved over the years? Especially as these amazing new channels have come to life and given you more opportunities to connect with consumers in different ways? I would say it's significantly changed the last three years. So we did quite a lot of partnership work at local level, as I mentioned. So in Czech Republic, in Poland, in Romania, myself, I personally worked with, you know, Romanian Football Federation, the Ice Hockey Federation in Czech, etc. But we'd never done anything on a really global scale with the global brands, which has all changed now. So we have three major properties, the Rugby World Cup with Asahi, which is the biggest single event we've ever done. Um, We've got Manchester City Group with Asahi Superdry 00. And we've got, of course, Aston Martin Formula One with Peroni 00. So these were, you know, major investments, first of all. I mean, they required, um, you know, pretty robust business cases. 
and plans behind them from the markets to execute this stuff. But we've discovered, I think, we've done some good things, some things that didn't work, and we wouldn't do those again. But basically, it's helped us a lot, uh, not just with external audiences to drive awareness and appreciation, but internally, which is also part of a marketeer's job, to build excitement and belief inside the company because most of our businesses, in a way, have a portfolio and they have a choice of which brands they sell (laughs) or promote or focus on. And of course, I want them to focus on the global brands as a priority. Having these partnerships has made a dramatic impact on that. So, you know, the sales are, we see it in the sales results. What are you most excited about in these massive engagements that you're having with the Rugby World Cup and Manchester City Football Club and Aston Martin? What are some of the sponsorship innovations that are exciting you the most? Yeah, I think it's a good question because, as I said, I think you can't just turn up as a brand. I think you have to turn up and be part of the party. So in the case of you know, Manchester City, first task was to renovate the beer experience in the stadium. It was pretty poor. Um, we had an objective to transform that into a really exciting experience, better beer, and transform the sales. So in the past, 20% of the sales were premium. Now they're 80%. People have a much better experience. But more than that, for the fans at scale, because not everybody goes to the matches, um, bringing behind-the-scenes stuff, showing the players in different environments. So they did a tour of Asia this year. They were in Tokyo, which is, I guess, our home as Asahi. And we did a series of uh, videos with some of the players, looking at some of their passion points around fashion, um, even barbering. It was really... uh, And those things, we see big, big engagement. In the case of Aston Martin... We've had like um, conversational drinks with Sebastian Vettel, Fernando Alonso. So behind the scenes with the drivers, which um, very few, surprising to me, but very few or no other partners or sponsors have done. And that's what the fans are interested in. And that got us a huge engagement. The Rugby World Cup, we've done a podcast with, the, with World Rugby, partnered with Asahi, Super Dry. And former players are talking about the matches, analyzing. I mean, that's been hugely popular. Um, House of Peroni. So we brought the pit stop. So we brought a f- replica Formula One car to the city centres. Um, and in many cases, I mean, over I think they said over 60% of Formula One fans have never been to a race, but they would love to see a car up close. So we said, hey, come to this place, see the car, have some Peroni 00. And those, those activations are the most exciting for me. So of course, there's a logo on a car, a logo on a shirt. But that's kind of paid for. You know, you don't have to be smart to do that. You just have to be rich, I guess. But the activations, um, when the fans and the millions of ticks, you know, kind of line up, that's what gets me excited, to be honest. The Rugby World Cup is obviously um, a massive event. This is the men's side of the game. Have you been excited by the explosion and opportunity around women's sports in the last couple of years? Do you have any plans to get more involved in that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's overdue, isn't it? I think it's great. I think in the UK, particularly, we see that. Um, We do have plans. I can't talk about all of them. Uh, But definitely, I mean, it would be inconsistent and uh, of us to not be involved in that, partly because it's good business, because the numbers, the audience numbers in the engagement is really high. So it's just simple good business. And two, because if you have a commitment, as we do, to have... Um, you know, representation of all society. You can't only partner the men's event. So watch this space. Uh, I think in other markets, 
you know, we're beginning to partner more and more female athletes and ambassadors um, because it's an important part of what we do. So when we promote the non-alcoholic beers, we're always careful and uh, considerate to include both men and women influencers and athletes as part of that. You mentioned that uh, the polarization and right now, and I want to throw this data point at you. So half, which is 50% of marketers agree in our polling that the debate around the role of popular sports in addressing social or political issues is growing. And then the other half that we surveyed believe that sports and politics are fundamentally unconnected, although obviously political issues come up occasionally. What's your view on that? Is that something that marketers need to consider now? Um, I mean, I'm not particularly surprised by the survey results. I think marketing people tend to be much more concerned than the general public. And most of the work that we've done in this area, when we ask consumers, should we be making a comment or addressing this issue? They said, well, no, you're a beer. You didn't cause the issue. Why are you talking? Why are you telling me about this? If you're a ketchup brand, why are you talking about political issues? I think you have to be very careful. So I think marketing people are far more interested in this than the general public. And the general public are much more capable of, you know, separating a political issue from a brand. I understand in some categories or some areas, this, there may be a difference. But in the products I work in, um, people are definitely able to identify the difference between what a brand does, what it represents, and, and a political regime, which may be something else. So my, I'm very cautious about this. And I think marketing people are out of line generally with the public's opinion. What happens, though, when brands get caught up in a political issue, for example, as has happened in the United States around cultural polarization or those types of things? Is well, that they- a different issue entirely? Well, I think the example you give is probably because they provoked it. So, I mean, I think you don't get caught up in something if you don't involve yourself in it. Um, I think if you provoke it, um, you can expect a reaction. And again, people are asking you, why are you getting involved with this? You're a beer. I like you or don't like you based on what you represent as a beer. I think you have to be very careful about trying to go further than that. And indeed, if you provoke, you can expect a reaction. Yeah. Let's move on to sustainability because I know this is something that your CEO in particular has been really outspoken about. And he claimed recently uh, in an interview that climate change has had an even bigger impact on the company than the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is quite an extraordinary statement. What are some of those key challenges that climate change specifically poses to a, to a beer brand like yours? Yeah, I guess Katsuki-san was referring to like long term. So I think long term... Right. Um, you know, the change, and we're an agricultural business, so we rely on the products of agriculture to make our beer. Um, and hops, in particular, are, are the product which gives beer its distinctive bitterness and its many of its unique uh, aromas and flavors. And, you know, hops are a temperature and climate sensitive crop, um, as is barley to a large extent. And those products, um, potentially could be under threat from climate change uh, because of their historic sourcing locations. I mean, there are not that many places in the world that make hops. And there are certain varieties like the Saz hop, which is made in Czech Republic, which is arguably the finest hop in the world. 
would be very hard to replace. Um, but therefore, our responsibility is to work with the farmers directly, which we do, to ensure the sustainable practices, to ensure that an individual farmer may not have the resources to, to build the technology to understand how to optimize his crop, but we can do that. And we can build the best practice because, you know, we work with um, over 1,500 farmers in Italy to ensure that Peroni barley um, is secure. And, you know, we work with over 500 farmers in Czech Republic to ensure that the hops are carefully managed. So I think uh, our responsibility is to work with, with them to bring best practice bring the best technology and insight in the world from the best universities so that they get it. And I guess, you know, things like water consumption, uh, which is a key driver for us, you know, how many liters of water do we use per liter of beer? We have to reduce that and we are reducing it. And our commitment is to have it at 2.75 to one. So below three, which is world-class. And we have to do that because water is, is going to become probably a more scarce commodity. Right. And you've mentioned some of the things there around so much of this for brands starts in the supply chain. It starts in the production. It starts with working with your various suppliers. Do you think marketing plays an important role in in telling that sustainability story and even potentially repositioning your products as a more sustainable option compared to, say, other competitors? Um, I think on the first question, yes. On the second one, I don't know. So the first one, should is it is it a role for marketing? Absolutely. I think we need to Um, talk about what we're doing because we're doing a lot and it's very important I think you have to find the right tone of voice and I think as time goes on all of us realize that if you preach at people or make this too serious it's actually off-putting I think it has to be engaging a little bit I don't want to say fun or light-hearted but you have to find a sweet spot that engages with people and then I think they're really interested in this subject Um, of course sustainability has different pieces so in many some of our brands were talking about circular packaging. All of our packaging should be recyclable or returnable. In some of them, we're focusing on water consumption, reduction of that. If if the brand is from an area with potential water, um, you know, scarcity. And in other brands, we talk about agriculture. So I think we've chosen, we tend to choose a subject or topic and talk about that with the brand. Otherwise, people can become overwhelmed. To your second question, is this a competitive advantage? I don't know because I think everybody should do this. And I'm not sure it's an area I should compete in as opposed to cooperating. So I think all beer in all our countries should have circular packaging, you know, because it's right for the planet. And therefore, it shouldn't be my competitive or our competitive advantage. It should be, hey, guys, we all need to do this together. Yeah, it's really interesting perspective and I guess like what you've really focused on here is the idea of making real tangible changes and having an evidence base for those changes does that help you with regards to I guess there's a lot of conversation in the industry around right now around things like greenwashing Mm. um, those types of things do does having that very clear evidence of what you are doing help with regards to perhaps some suspicion around what corporate businesses might actually be able to do with regards to fighting climate change? Yeah, totally. You need to have, you need to have real truth in this and it needs to be at scale. You know, I see these examples of we've made this fully paper-based recyclable bottle and they made 200 of them 
which is their their sales per second. They've had one second. I mean, this is this is not this is a PR story. This is not what we want to do at Asahi. Absolutely not. So if we're doing that, we're not telling anyone about it because we're just doing it as a as an internal trial. What we are going to talk about is we've changed our entire system to returnable bottles. Uh, 400 million euros of sales. Ah, okay. So we're not going to talk about stuff unless it's big and scalable. We do lots of stuff we don't talk about because it's not because we're afraid of greenwashing, but we ourselves hold a standard that if this is not big and scalable yet, just don't say anything. Marketing people often you know, have nothing to say, but insist on saying it anyway. And I, uh, this is not us. So we will insist on saying something when it's when we think it's really important and interesting. So this is about putting your money where your mouth is in terms of being able to back up. I think it's credibility. I need to be able to, it's not about, yeah, what the market says. It's actually about, can you look yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, we've really made a big difference here. And I can back it up with numbers, but I can tell you, I can look you in the eye and say, this is serious and we're doing it. Um, Then we talk about it. Good stuff. Let's jump into media now. Is there anything in particular that you're prioritizing strategically in tech or media investment at the moment? Um, I would say that we are on, a, like most businesses, on a data and digital journey. We're probably a little bit behind some some other companies. So having first party data, having it organized, knowing what to do with it. Um, we're at the beginning of that journey. We've started to do some work. A consumer digital hub here. Uh, we're looking at um, how we can bring a, a bit more marketing in-house. I don't believe that all marketing services can be in-house, but I think some definitely can. It's not about cost, although that's that is that matters. It's about speed, and I think it's about quality as well. Um, fragmentation is a big problem. We've talked about that. But then I think you need to look at properties. And we've also talked about that sports marketing and things which actually bring you that scale. Um, I, I would say that AI is the big topic this year. We had a marketing conference um, about a month ago. And the topic was, you know, Terminator 23, the rise of the marketeers. It's like, uh, what if Skynet comes true? What if AI is, AI is here? What do we do with it? I think it's the latest marketing buzzword. Um, I think we see practical uses for it. It can speed up testing and development of certain things, can take away some labor-intensive, relatively low-value added tasks, but it it definitely doesn't replace human insight um, and it doesn't pr- replace you know ultimate creativity. So we're starting to use it, but it's not going to change our business. Do you think the generative AI and other applications of AI and the prevalence of it across all types of marketing, because as you say, there's a lot of different opportunities, will that change what you think about with regards to which skill sets you recruit or what you're looking for in your agency partners, for example? Oh, I think this is the age of the marketeer. So I think um, you have to be better than AI. A lot of marketeers are not. So what I can get from a if I say, give me a, a brief for this brand, what I get from AI is mediocre, but okay. So you have to be better than that. <laughs> that already takes out 20% of people. And I think the human element, the requirement to see beyond the obvious, the requirement to see things that others cannot see, the requirement to find difference, which is what we have as humans, is what's going to separate the marketeers from 
um, the others. So I think the skill set, if anything, will become um, more specific and actually more focused because I don't, we don't need people to do the everyday basic tasks. Machines will do that better for us. But the higher added value human tasks, we need the talent, real talent and marketing to come through. So I think it's, uh, which is why the conference was called The Rise of the Marketeer. I think this is, rather than diminish or kill, it's actually going to bring to the forefront those who are the marketeers. That's a great place to leave it. Grant McKenzie, thank you so much for joining us on the Walk podcast today and for the generosity of your insights. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. That was Grant McKenzie from Asahi. Thanks so much for tuning into this interview mini-series. For more exclusive insights from CMOs and from the Walk Marketers Toolkit, check out more on walk.com. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Walk podcast. Have a great day.